Well, we rejoice that uh, two of the pastors are able to be in other parts of the world right now, and so thankful that PK is in India. He loves to travel to encourage believers there and to share truth with non-believers, so we praise the Lord for that. And uh, I don't know if you've been reading his dispatches at all. I know Keith referenced those, Keith Withrow referenced those, but uh, it's kind of a rough run, but I'm sure he can get through it because he's done it more than any of us, I'm sure. And uh, so thankful that Pastor Mark and all the Red Ferns can be in North Africa with AW and JP. I think it's the first, it's either the first pastoral visit or it might be the second one. I think Pastor Jonathan, maybe six years ago, I know he was in Ireland and Serbia, and he, he might have been in North Africa as well, um, did some a, a visit there. Um, but so thankful that they can go be an encouragement and see. And, uh, you know, in, in North Africa there, there, this new church has been planted just in the past months. Um, and so here is, in a, in a Muslim country, the gospel being proclaimed. And when you read the updates that we're able to see from, from AW, you can hear the gospel is going forth with this person and with this person and with this person. And we rejoice with that. I mean, that is um, almost unprecedented. We, I feel like my entire adult life, since maybe college, we've been praying so much for the gospel to go forth, especially in Muslim nations. And we get to have a part in that. It's... Uh, just a, a terrific gift. Just praise praise the name of Almighty God that that's happening. So you're there in First Peter, just as as way of reminder. Last week we talked about discernment and talked about how important discernment is. Uh, that we, we talked about that we live in a world where there is so often a lack of discernment and foolish decisions being made over here and over here and over here. And that we like to often say, well, it's people outside of the church. But if we're really honest, we could agree that oftentimes it's in within the church as well. If we're really, really honest, we can agree that it's often in our own homes as well. And how many wars have started and relationships have been ruined and trust has been broken and careers have been derailed because of lack of biblical discernment. How many times have... Decisions been made that reflect so poorly upon us as believers even as well. We discuss growing in wisdom and discernment as something that Christians must continually work on. This is a gift that we have the opportunity to work on throughout our life to the glory of God through the Holy Spirit's power. And chiefly in discernment is knowing and wanting to obey God and his perfect word. Uh, But today we're going to look at an error that a discerning person can often fall into that of being a critical person. So let's say, let's say you're a discerning person and you generally make good decisions and you recognize temptations and you fight sin and you want to please God with your life and praise the Lord for that. But what can often happen? What about people that don't see things as you see them? What about people in your life that make a poor decision and another poor decision And another poor decision. And what do you often think? What is wrong with this person? How can they be this way? And we can go from being frustrated. We can go from wanting God to be glorified. Maybe becoming frustrated. Morphing all the way into a point of everything this person does. You're thinking, really? Again? Really? Again? And we can go from being 
a wise God-honoring person to truly being a foolish person ourselves as we are saying, I guess I am the judge. I guess I am God. Because this person is driving me crazy and I'm criticizing and criticizing and criticizing. And what does that look like in our life? Well, it can get pretty ugly. So today we're going to talk about guarding the gospel from a critical spirit. We're going to see this push that Peter gives to love one another well. We're going to see another push that he gives to fight the self-exalting sin. And then the third thing we're going to see that he pushes is we need to long for the word of God. And I want to say this today, um, you in this, in this group here today, there, there's certainly people that have been believers for decades and decades and decades. There's certainly also people in here, you might say, you know, I'm not even a Christian. I don't even, you know, what is this stuff you're talking about? If you really want to know, I don't care what anybody does ever. How could I be critical? Do whatever you want. Well, whichever of those camps and anywhere in between that you're in today, I think there's some good things that we can learn from the word of God. So let's dig into loving one another well. Before we get into the text, conflict is part of life. Um, we could go, we could look at several different places, but we could look at Paul's writing in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, hey, Yodia and Syntyche, this ought not to be. You two believing ladies are fighting with each other. And he says, hey, church at Philippi, you need to help these ladies out. You need to help them to honor God in their life. Help them work through this problem. Conflict is a normal part of life. Philippians was written, I think, 62, 63 AD, right about the time, 1 Peter, that Peter was writing this letter as well. Uh, Peter writing this letter to the churches in, in Asia Minor, and he would 100% agree with what Paul had said about conflict. It's there, but we need to work through that. In much of 1 Peter, um, chapter 2 really starting in maybe verse 11 and going through about the middle of chapter 4, the, a, a big section of this letter is about, hey, here is how we work with through conflict. Hey, believing wife, what do you do with your non-believing spouse? Hey, boss or employee, what do you do with, with an employer who's, who's being a problem? Hey, what do you do with conflict within the church? Servants and masters, submission to authorities. Kind of goes on and on with that. And then we get... We're here just before that section, and Peter reminds us about love, about this expectation that we are to love one another well and deeply. And he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's our command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable. What are these three phrases or words connected with this love? Well, he has sincere brotherly love. That's selfless. That's not about me. That's a do unto others type of love. I've got a quote from John Stott that I thought was good connected with with fighting being critical and loving well, especially this brotherly kind of love. And John Stott says this. It's a little bit of a long quote, so I'll just read this. Uh, He says this. He says, Thank God there there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. Amen to that. But sometimes they're conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. 
Others can make the opposite sinful mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of God's word. Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold these two together, which should not be difficult for the spirit-filled believers. This is John Stott's words, not mine. I think there can really be some challenges there. But he says this, because the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth, and his first fruit is love. There was no other route than this to a fully mature Christian unity. And I say amen to that. We need to love one another well. We must have this biblical brotherly love. We also need to do it earnestly, the text says right there. Earnestly is the opposite of just letting things happen. There's intentionality, there's focus, there's drive to this. You can think of a job that you have wanted to have at a, at a certain time, or maybe that first day with a person that eventually became your, your spouse, or maybe there's some other goals that you have in life. And if there are real goals, we've gone after things, right? We have earnestly tried to do a good job, to accomplish a task, whatever the case might be, And in our love for others, how earnest are we? Do we love them when it's convenient? Do we love them when it's easy? Do we love them when we think about it, which might not be very often? Or is this something that we earnestly seek? And then the the last word he has here, the last little phrase, would be that of a, a pure heart. Talking about right motives. Not what I can get, but rather a purity Purity truly received from Christ. And sometimes with the critical spirit, what can happen, um, it's similar to most sins. Most sins start as like a perversion of something that God has made good. So, so being aware of sin and being watchful for sin and wanting to run from sin. Those are such good, healthy, God-honoring things. But when that critical spirit becomes, if you're not like me, I can't stand being around you. That's when it gets to be a serious problem. I think often in our longing for rightness and our longing for no sin and in our longing for having the rightness of Almighty God and His perfection, we can get frustrated or impatient as we wait. There is a future and there is a hope. And that's what we were created for, but we're not in that perfection yet. And in that in-between time, fight it. You, um, be thankful for the pure heart that will be found through the work of Jesus Christ. And truly that brings us to these two phrases we have. Uh, one is in 22 and one is in 23. And they don't stand alone. They're both connected to the command um, that we need to love one another earnestly. So love one another earnestly. What are two phrases connected with that? There's, they're kind of supposed to be a mental picture for us. And the first one is right at the beginning of verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So how are we supposed to love? Well, having purified our souls by obedience to truth. Now, this might sound to you like there's some, some work salvation. There's some things I can do to save myself. Uh, thank you for Pastor Keith uh, in, in his reading of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning and the responsive reading was also in, in at least two of the songs. I can't earn my way to a good position with God. I can't do anything to make God, okay, I'm going to do this or do enough of this or even do a little bit of this and God's going to like me. Then God will see some merit in me and things are going to work out. That is, that is not what Peter is arguing for here. 
He's having this purified word is a little bit of a picture. If you can picture some overgrown field, you might see. And there's brush and there's trash and there's old, some dead trees laying on the ground. And the purified idea is that being set fire to. And that fire roars up. And if it gets hot enough and good enough, it burns all that stuff away. It burns it all clean. And you look at it and it's this blackened thing. But if you get a gentle rain, not a gusher of a rain, but if you get a gentle rain, maybe another gentle rain a week later, and you look at that a week after that, and you look at that field and instead of seeing trash and, you know, paper that's blown in and brush over here, it's cleaned off like that. That's the idea of being purified. And this is not that something that that field can do of its own. The field can't say, you know what, I'm feeling some, I want some cleaning. I'm going to make this happen. No, usually a person, whether it's on accident or on purpose, makes a decision. I'm going to, I'm going to fire this thing clean. We're going to clean this off. And that's really the picture of being purified. And lest we think this obedience that I do is doing some earning, let's look. You're, you're there in First Peter. So let's look at some verses just some previous verses from 22 to kind of help our thinking. So we're talking about salvation. We're talking about new life in Christ. We're talking about becoming a Christian. Being born again is another phrase being used in here. Where does that come from? Is that from my own effort? Well, look at some verses with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. It starts off in, in verse 16, a command that God had given a couple thousand years before this. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then we go into 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So did you ransom yourself? Or who did this ransoming? Who, who paid for you? Who paid for me? Who bought us back? It says you were ransomed with what? Verse 19, with the precious blood of the Messiah, of Christ. Just like a lamb without blemish or spot. Hey, you can picture that Old Testament sacrifice he's writing to his original audience in Asia Minor. Picture that sacrifice. That's what Christ was for us. And was it because you were so great? No, it says you were ransomed from feudal ways. You weren't ransomed because you were so good or I was so good. We weren't ransomed because we had so much value. Hey, this guy's worth $10 million and some thieves have said, hey, if you want him back, you got to give us $2 million. You were ransomed, you were feudal, feudal ways over here. And he says, you were ransomed through the blood of Jesus Christ because of the goodness of God the Father. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And what does it say in the very last verse? Through him, you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. For what purpose? So that your faith and hope are in God. If I could do even this much to earn my way in good with God, what would my faith and hope be in? My faith and hope would be in, hey, I've done pretty well. Or, hey, I'm doing a little bit better. But it says here, so that my faith and hope are in God. So then when it goes into verse 22 and it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, this is not saying, we can clearly see, this is not saying because of all the good things I have done, this is the work of Christ. Yet, if I love him, I want to follow him. I want to please him. I want to obey him. I think that obedience and faith being connected together, 
um, is, is several times in Romans. And I'm going to, you can flip through here with me if you want. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 1 and then 15 and then 16 just quickly. Or you can just listen as I read. Romans chapter 1 verse 5. It's talking about Jesus Christ and his resurrection and the holiness we get from him. And it says this in verse 5. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the one through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So obedience is an expectation of faith, but it's not earned. Uh, Romans 15 has another one here. I'm going to turn to Romans 15. Click in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. So he came for the Jewish people, that's what it's saying, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given the patriarchs. 15.18 would be a lot better. 15.18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring about the Gentiles now to obedience by word and deed. He's setting up, I came for the Jews, I came for the Gentiles, and I want it because I want obedience for the sake of Christ, for honor and glory to go to his name. Chapter 16 Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. 26, but what has now been disclosed and has been, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God, for what purpose? To bring about the obedience of faith, that having purified Obedience and faith, they go hand in hand in the scriptures because we love the Savior. And then it has that same phrase, we're back in First Peter, having purified your souls, that enables us to love earnestly. And the second phrase, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So what's this idea of being born again? Well, it's another word for becoming a Christian for trusting in Christ, for becoming a child of God. And it's saying that that's bigger than any biological begetting. I mean, today is Father's Day. As a dad, I'm so thankful that the Lord allowed me to be a dad. That is one of his greatest gifts to me. And I'm thinking many of you could echo and say the same thing. That is a a gift from God that, that we are so, so thankful for. But it's pushing us a little bit here. It's saying... Having a child is good, but there's, but, that, but that's going to go away. And so it's saying this, if I could read this for myself. Hey, Thad, it's great that you had all these kids. It's great that you got to have seven kids, but you know what, Thad? I'm going to die. And every one of my kids is going to die someday. Now, I don't know the timing on it. It might be very soon or it might be in 82 years or something. I have, I have no idea. But at some point, I'm going to die and they're going to die. But we have an inheritance here that's different than that. We have something here that is imperishable. Right here in 1 Peter, it says in verse 3 um, of chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's that another word for becoming a Christian. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading kept in heaven for you. Well, I don't know about you. I've, I've never gotten an inheritance of, of anything. Um, I don't know if I ever will. Maybe you have. But if, if you're going to inherit something, you would want it to be really, really solid. You wouldn't want it to be shaky. You wouldn't want it to be, hey, we think this will is going to work out, hopefully, but we don't really know. But he says here, I don't know what your life's going to look like here on earth as far as what you're going to get from your parents or grandparents, but I can tell you what the inheritance from Almighty God is. It is imperishable. It is unfading. It is undefiled. It, it will be kept in heaven forever. It will happen. That's the type of hope that we have. Not physical death, but eternal life in Christ. We have a room full of dying people, and this is hope. I don't know if you read this week. Uh, if you, I don't know, it freaked me out. Might not you, I don't know. But there was a lady this week in Ecuador. I'm hoping at least somebody out here read this article this week. At her own wake, in the coffin, I think at her son-in-law's house, they hear a tapping and more tapping. She was still alive. And they said, oops, they took her to the hospital. Now, of all the things that we don't want to happen, that would be right up there, right? And we're thankful we have good kids that are going to take good care of us at whatever time. We want to be all the way dead when we're in that coffin. But when I read this, as a Christian, I can read this. And the thought of losing my kids now is really hard for me to think about. And I know there's people in here who have lost kids. Multiple people in here. And the pain does not go away this side of eternity. But we have real true hope not because we can be strong enough because the power of almighty god i can fight the central topic today i can fight a critical spirit and i can love other people well because i'm a child of god i will physically die if i'm a child of god we will live second point fight self-exalting sin As we discussed last week, discernment is mostly a defensive position. Uh, I don't run around looking for problems per se, but when sin or error or foolishness shows up, we respond to it in a, in a deliberate way. We don't avoid the conflict because that would not be honoring Jesus Christ, but we don't go unduly searching for it either. And, and as, as Christians, we have to work with that and weigh that and check our own hearts. Um, I'm thankful for discernment that people fight for. This week, um, or some, maybe I guess early into next week, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we're lightly a part, made some decisions to exclude some people from membership. And I'm thankful for that. One of the churches that got excluded, the female pastor said, oh yeah, you're just, here's in a nutshell, Satan is so happy when you do what you're doing. By excluding us. That was the pastor of, I think, Fern Creek Baptist in Louisville. And uh, Saddleback in California was removed. Rick Warren, um, or at least the process is, was voted for. And um, I will tell you this. I don't like conflict. I don't like when believers argue, disagree, all those kind of things. But when we get to the point where we're just going to pretend something isn't sinful so that our group can be bigger or that we can keep everyone happy, 
or we cannot look bad in front of the media, we've got a real problem on our hands. So I'm so thankful the discernment that was shown by all the messengers that got to, that got to vote. But being critical is often significantly offensive. So, so, um, if discernment is a defensive posture, it's, I'm watching for things and I'm guarding. Oftentimes being critical is like, I'm going on offense. I'm going to attack those people over there. What's going on in that corner over there? I'm going to get after them. And it, it can be a pretty aggressive thing. And we can be saying, you know, what did she mean by that? Or I'm pretty sure that guy's going woke. Or what's wrong with that guy over there? It can have those kind of things, cause divisions that God has not put up. So a warning for us today as we're thinking about being critical. Let me just read a, a few verses from Proverbs. Um, Proverbs chapter 6 gives us a pretty good warning as we think through fighting self-exalting sin. Proverbs chapter 6, um, starting at verse 12, says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his finger. Those are all, all Hebrew words for, for trying to deceive, trying to trick somebody. Uh, with perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, because of this, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you. And Peter gives us this warning as then we move into chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He says this, really our second command. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. What are some of these things? Well, malice is anger, wanting the worst for someone. Uh, Ken Sandy, who wrote the book Peacemakers, which I would recommend to you, um, especially if you struggle in this area or have some challenges with some, some family members or coworkers or someone here in this church, I would encourage you. He says this, he warns against having an overly sensitive attitude in talking about having a critical spirit. So he says, I, I warn you to be, not to be overly sensitive. Don't dwell on what others have done because often that can turn into anger against them. So as I'm too sensitive, everybody can, why'd you do that to me? What, did you really mean that against me? And we can become overly sensitive and that can turn into anger, can turn into the malice that we are being warned about here. The deceit and hypocrisy, that would be falseness, lying, potentially insincerity, envy, wanting what another has. That could be money, looks, family, talents, success, slander, talking down about another, whether it's false or true, trying to make them look bad. And uh, why this argument to put away evil thinking towards others? Because it really destroys love. We have this bond that Christians ought to have. That we should look across the room and say, there's a believer and there's a believer and we have a connection in Christ. When slander is happening, it's taking that bond and twisting it and bending it and weakening it and potentially breaking it, taking away this beautiful thing that God has made. So a, a case study, if you will, 
Some of you were in Romans earlier. If you want to turn back to Romans with me, or you can just listen, that'd be, that's totally fine as well. But if you have your Bible and you'd like to turn there, turn to Romans 14. Let's do a case study on fighting self-exalting sin. Kind of think through where you are. We've got two different positions here. Two different positions on two different circumstances. And where do you land on this and how do you typically respond? Because our norm as humans is to say, well, I'm making the right decisions here, but I got a goofy guy. You know, I got this brother-in-law or I've got someone at church or this or that. That's, that's our temptation. But how does God push us in this little case study from Romans 14? Um, in this here, we've got uh, two different groups of people. In the first one, we've got someone that eats only vegetables, only vegetables over here. And you have another person that eats all the stuff. They eat all the good foods. Okay, here's our two groups, only vegetables and all the good stuff. And then we have another, in verse 5, we have a, a second example. And it would be someone that sees one day or a day as being especially holy. And we have another person that says, I, I see all the days as holy. I see them all together holy, and I want to honor God in that. And this is within the body of Christ. So kind of think maybe where you might be tempted to land on there and say, okay, how do I respond to people that are different than me? Just kind of think that as we read this through. And Paul says in Romans 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So I want you guys to be together, but I don't want you to come together and you can just brawl over vegetables or everything. Vegetables or everything. Yeah, every time I see this guy, I argue with him about this or that. We ought not to be proud of, of that. He says, I want you guys to welcome and be together, but don't be fighting about this stuff. Don't be quarreling about this stuff. That is, that is not the purpose. Rather, so he says, here's our example. One person believes he may eat anything, this person here, while the weak person eats only vegetables, this person over here. And here's our command. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So this person that eats everything, he is not to disdain this person that decides to only eat vegetables. And the flip side is, this person is not to disdain this person either. And so it says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Don't play God. Let them be what they want to be within these boundaries that are given. And then he continues on. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Well, whose servant is this? Servants of God's. Absolutely. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master or his own Lord, your translation might say, this is truly talking about God, that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Like his God is able to protect him and his God is okay with this and his God is okay with this and you're not to be judging each other. It says, let me give you another example. One person esteems one day as better than another while the other person esteems all days alike. What should we do? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Fully convinced in his own mind. Now, this is not an area of sin. I want to be very clear on that. There are too many people in our world today that say, I'm a Christian and I don't care what you do and you shouldn't care what I do because God and I have a deal or God understands I like to do X, Y, or Z. And if pointed out, actually the Bible says no to that. People say like, well, God understands my heart. He understands what I need. 
This is not talking about that sort of thing. If, if we were to, if these examples would not be here if person A doesn't believe in lying, person B believes in lying, don't worry about it, just let them be. That's not what this is saying. And in our, in greater Christianity, that has become the norm. If you don't affirm things that the Bible say, says are sinful, then you're being mean and, 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 and all those different things. This is not what this is talking about. These are freedom issues, not sin issues. We need to be super, super clear about that. And what's the principle? We stand before God. He is the judge. Both groups are upheld by him. We must be fully convinced in our own mind and then let it go about the other person. Do research on it. You really should decide. It says fully convinced in your own mind. You should research freedom areas. You should have a reason for why you do what you do. If in freedom areas we just say, well, I just kind of do what other people do or yeah, I think people at church seem cool with this, so that's what I do too. I, I, I don't, I don't encourage that a lick. You need to know. You should be fully convinced in your own mind. You might make decisions. You should make decisions that are different from other people as you seek God in His Word. And He's your judge. Rest in that. Let's, let's look at these last few verses here. Some, some good principles for us to think about. We're in verse six. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I think when we have temptations with a critical spirit and we put some thoughts into this, we can say, is this really sinful? Well, there's a time and a place for you to say, hey, I love you, brother in Christ. I love you, sister in Christ. Can I talk with you about this or that? There's also glory in overlooking offense. So there's a time for saying, this is maybe I'm, I'm offended. I don't know. Uh, maybe it just, I could pray about it a lot and I could give this over to the Lord and trust him in this. Fair enough. If it's overtly sinful, let's talk with one another about it. Let's encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching, Right? But if it's not a sinful issue and we're just being critical, we must fight it and fight it and fight it. We need to fight self-exalting sin and we need to love well. And then thirdly, we need to long for God's word. If you're back in First Peter, um, it says in verse 2 of chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. I don't know, parents or grandparents or aunts, uncles, whatever, if you've fed a baby a bottle or a sippy cup or something like that. And some kids maybe aren't that into it, and they're just like, yeah, okay, I ate, I'm done. And other kids, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, take the bottle and kind of move it one way and move it the other way, and they kind of do that. Uh, not frustrating them. I won't do that to your children. We had one of our kids um, with a sippy cup. She she loved uh, milk like nobody's business. You could she could almost you could do circles with her head. She's she's actually visiting from St. Louis right now. <laughs> yeah, some good memories there. But how intense does that baby want that milk? How hungry does it go after that milk? I mean, it's intense. 
Or if you've been out to our house and you've seen some of the animals that we feed, bottle feed, different things, lambs, goats, deer, whatever we're feeding at the time. I mean, they like attack the bottle, you know, ram into the fence wanting, wanting a bottle. There's intensity to that. And Peter is saying, hey, we need to long for the word of God in that same way. That's what this milk is. And it's a command. He goes into a couple previous verses that really fit with this well. Um, right at the end of 23, he talks about the living and abiding word of God. And then he has this quote from Isaiah 40 that we're actually going to look at. But he says here, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. But you know what grass does? Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So he's saying, hey, you know what humans are like? They're like grass. He doesn't say humans are like an oak tree. They last a really long time and they burn for a long time. He basically says humans, our life is so short. It's like grass. If you've seen a grass fire, I mean, it's fast. It burns up in nothing. And, and grass, it grows, it gets hot and dry like right now, and it dies back, or weeds, or any kind of forbs, whatever you might be thinking of. But unlike us, what does God's word do? It continues on. It remains forever. I like to read from Isaiah. I think this might be up on the um, behind me. Isaiah 40, uh, starting with verse 6. And this is written, you know, Isaiah was written about, 700 years uh, before the time of Christ. And in this section of Isaiah, he's saying, hey, bad times are coming. There's actually, you're going to get ripped out of Israel and people are going to be dispersed all over. And then Judah, 100 years down the road, 130 years down the road, 120 years down the road, the same thing's going to be happening. Groups are going to be taken to Babylon and you're going to be exiles in the land. So it's future to Isaiah's writing. But he also includes in this chapter 40, Comfort for exiles. So this terrible bad thing that's going to happen in 120 years, I'm going to give you some comfort with it. And I think it's comfort and a great reminder for us as well. So Isaiah chapter 40, starting with verse 6. And a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what you should cry. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. People will come and people will go. Babies will be born and people will die. And this cycle is going to continue, but Almighty God and his word will continue for forever. And he says, go on up to a high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. It's really an amazing verse right here. It says, the Lord God comes with might. So he's saying, In 120 years, you're going to go into exile. And then about a generation after that exile starts, about 70 years later, there's going to be a remnant that's going to come back to Judah. And so the nearest fulfillment of that, as far as prophecy, is this right here saying, the Lord God comes with might. He's going to bring a remnant back to Judah. But then a secondary fulfillment of that is when the Messiah Christ comes 
to Judah, right? Born in Bethlehem, preaches all throughout the, that part of the world right there, right? And he came back, and then there's a third fulfillment of this prophecy, if you will, that Jesus is coming back. And we today can look and say, I don't know if it'll be in 10 minutes. I don't know what kind of timing this is going to be. But he is coming back and he is trustworthy and he is good. And look at what he is like. Those of you in here who are believers, who are following Jesus Christ, this is who Jesus is. He is a good shepherd. And those of you in here today and you're saying, I, I'm not a Christian. I don't even know some of this. What? I, I'm not even sure what's going on in some of this. Let me tell you what Jesus is like. Because you can trust in Jesus today. I don't care if you're a young kid in here. I don't know if you've been in church a bunch of times. I don't know if you've never been in church before today. I, I have no idea. But what is this Savior like? This good Father who sent his Son? Let me tell you. He's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. And he's going to gather the lambs in his arms. And I guess what's my response? Is he my shepherd? The hard things that you have going on in your life that other people don't even know about? He really does care. He really will carry you along as he promises right here. Feeling critical today. Struggle with being critical with other people. I think reminding ourselves that I'm a sinner, that I deserve eternal wrath, but I've been forgiven much. And so has, you can fill in the blank with whoever you struggle feeling critical with. And then just kind of by way of closing, a few more thoughts here. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. So you're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You know here he's, he's quoting from about 1,500 years before this um, some promises he made to Israel as they'd been wandering in the desert. And then we're coming up to getting the Ten Commandments near Mount Sinai. Hey, guess what you can be? You can be a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that can be us. He says here in, in, the, um, verse, in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We sang, um, the worship team led us in that song at the beginning. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a quote from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a psalm that David wrote. Um, he had been running from Saul and he'd almost died and he, he was affirming, God, you're my refuge. God, you're my refuge. And he had some weak moments there. And he goes to Achish, king of Gath, and he's drooling and spitting all over and pulling out his beard because the people there said, isn't this the guy that kills Philistines? You know, these would be Philistine people. And David is there. He starts drooling and pulling his beard out and all this stuff. And the king says, you know, I don't, I don't need a crazy man on my watch. You know, get out, get out of here. And David wrote this psalm saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's my refuge. Not some king over here, not having strength of an army. He's the one in which I rely. Tom Schreiner writes this. He says, longing to grow spiritually, 
comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord and the experience of his kindness and goodness. Those who pursue God ardently have tasted his sweetness. Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty or, or some kind of alien moralism. The desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness and an experience that leaves believers desiring more. Many of you are familiar with the author A.W. Pink. Um, he's benefited me greatly, and I'm sure dozens of you out there as well. <coughs> Excuse me, he was born uh, 1886 in England, uh, came here uh, to the United States, went to Moody for a while, actually ended up in Silverton, Colorado, which is about as small a town as you could hope to live in, spent some time in California. Then he came back to Kentucky, spent quite a bit of time in Kentucky, Kentucky, I think he was in Albany, Kentucky, Burksville, Scottsville, went to Australia for a while, came back to Kentucky, uh, might have gone to New Zealand for a while, came back to Kentucky. His wife was from Bowling Green. Uh, this whole time he's writing and writing and writing. He led almost 25 churches in his life, and he didn't live to be an old man. He would typically stay at a church for a month or three months or up to the long-tenured almost two years. And he'd get kicked out, or more generally, he would leave. And they would be upset at him, and he would be upset at them. None of the churches that he pastored were ever conservative enough for him. And he words it in different ways and different things that he wrote. Um, eventually ended up going back to England and was in a prairie, I'm sorry, into Great Britain, pretty rural part of Scotland. And that's where he did a lot of the writing that we would read today. So God used him in a mighty way. What church was he part of the last 15 years of his life? He never went to church again. There was a church in his town. A church that was pretty similar to him theologically. But it wasn't conservative enough for him. Got too frustrated with the people there. They weren't serious enough about their faith. So he wouldn't go. He has this, he has this quote. He, he put it in a, in a newsletter to his people. It is not convenient to receive any visitors. And respectfully, I ask readers who may visit these parts to kindly refrain from calling on us. So much gifting. So much discernment. But really fought having a critical spirit. And in doing so, he isolated himself. Let that not be us. Let us love one another well. Let us fight that self-exalting sin. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what that person is doing. Let us long for God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you open our eyes to our own sin. Father, our, our temptation is to maximize other people's sin and to minimize our own. Father, specific to this message, you help us to fight having a critical spirit. Some of us struggle with it, myself included, more than others, certainly in this room. Lord, at different times we can think terrible thoughts of relatives, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is sin and that is wrong, and may you forgive us, Father. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is big enough to take that ugly sin upon himself and give us new life. Heavenly Father, will you help us to fight this? Will you help us to see joy in diversity, 
to be wise and discerning, but to fight having a critical spirit. Do your good work in each of our hearts.